Well, over the summer period, we were fortunate enough to be able to go on holidays and we headed to the beach. And uh, our family quite like the beach. Don't, this isn't a picture of us at the beach, so don't try and spot us in the crowd there. But uh, as, as we're at the beach, our family really enjoy it. But the person who loves being in the water more than anyone else is my husband, Cameron. And he is always in the water, uh, you know, first where I'm like, you know, just dipping my toe in and it takes me a long time to get in. But he's there right from the get-go and he's always there after we've all got too cold or too bored and we're all on the beach and he is still out in the surf. And he loves body surfing. And so as the dutiful wife, as I'm looking after the kids on the beach, I will keep looking out into the water just to check that he's still there and that he's still safe. But the thing is, is when you are looking for someone in the water, often it's really hard to spot them. It's really hard to identify your person out there. And so often it takes me a little while. But Cam and I have been married for over 20 years I have been looking at him for a really long time. (laughs) And so it's a little easier for me to identify him than maybe someone who doesn't know him for as long. I know what his swimming rashy looks like, so I'll look for that first. I know he's about six foot tall, so I'll be looking to see the taller people out in the surf. But it's even the smaller details. I know how he walks. I know how he carries himself. And if his voice is picked up from the the wind and brought to me on the beach, then I'll know for sure that he's out there because I know what his voice sounds like. Let's be honest, we've been married for so long, I probably could predict what he is saying as well. When you know someone so well, you can identify them, you can hear them, And you can spot them even in a crowd, even when it's difficult to be able to see them. As Tim mentioned, we are in a series where we're looking at the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. And it's a book, it's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing back to the people in Philippi, a congregation that he has helped plant there. And he's no longer with them. He's actually in a prison. And yet they have continued to journey with him in ministry. They are supporting him. And he's writing a letter back to them to say thank you, that he is so encouraged by their partnership. But Paul will always, as a true leader, take the opportunity to teach and give them guidance on what is happening in their context as well. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, just the first 11 verses. And as we read through, I'm going to stop at different points just to explain the context of what Paul is referring to, to help us understand this passage. So you can follow along in your own Bibles, on your phone if you like, or we do have it up on the screen. Starting at verse 1, Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So here is a safeguard he's warning them about. Watch out for those dogs 
those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. These are pretty full-on words that he is calling someone. You hear these terms, a dog, to call someone, a derogatory term, a dog, a mutilator of the flesh, an evildoer, makes you think, who is he referring to? Is this some new pagan cult that is uh, around at this time that he is warning the people about? The word dog was often a term that the Jewish people, the people who followed the one true God, would say against the Gentiles, people who didn't follow the one true God. And yet it is this term that the Apostle Paul is actually calling a group of his fellow Jewish people. There was a thought amongst the Jewish people at the time that if someone wanted to be a believer of Jesus, they had to become a Jew first. Therefore, they had to follow all the Jewish laws. They had to do the Jewish cultural traditions. And one of those traditions was circumcision. When a baby was born, a few days later, they would be circumcised. And this was part of the Jewish culture. So the feeling was between, in, amongst the Jewish culture, was that if someone was to come to faith and believe in God through Jesus Christ, then they should be circumcised as well to show that they are following the Jewish law. Now, as you read verse 2, you can pick up pretty easily how Paul feels about this. He uses the term mutilators of the flesh. This word mutilation, it's a word used to cut. And there was a particular word that was used in the cutting of the foreskin around circumcision. But this isn't the term that Paul uses. He uses a term, a mutilation, meaning a cutting of the flesh, which is often what pagans would do in their worship to their gods. In fact, in Leviticus, in the Jewish law, we read this word being used when, when God says to the people, do not be mutilators of the flesh. Don't be like the pagans who cut themselves in worship. And here we have Paul using these terms for his fellow Jewish believers in God because he realises this is a stumbling block for the Gentiles to come into relationship with God. So he goes on. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Because the Jewish people were so concerned as to their, their rituals and their cultural tra traditions, the things that they could actually do, not what God had done for them. And they were putting confidence in that rather than their confidence in their relationship with God. Though I myself, Paul says, have reasons for such confidence. And then we get a bit of a resume of Paul. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, done at the correct time, at the, you know, in the correct way of the Jewish culture, of the people of Israel. He was a true Jewish man. He was 
born from the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the faith. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was a good tribe to be a part of. It was kind of a distinguished tribe. It was out of the tribe of Benjamin that uh, the first king of Israel was anointed when King Saul was anointed. He was from the, tri the tribe of Benjamin. And it was within the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin that Jerusalem, the holy city, was built. So he's kind of saying, you know, this is, how, this is the good bloodline that I come from. A Hebrew of Hebrews, not diverted by any other culture, but true Jew Jewish culture, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. We hear about the Pharisees quite a lot in the New Testament. They were so learned. They had dedicated so much of their time to learn about the Scriptures, to know them, to recite them, to teach them. In fact, the word Pharisee means the separated ones. They were set apart because of their dedication to the law and the Scriptures. And in verse 6, he goes on, as for zeal, persecuting the church. That's how we first hear about Paul. And as for righteousness, righteousness based on the law, faultless. A very impressive resume for the Jews. But, Paul says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, personally as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Now, some of you, if you've been in church for a long time, may have heard this word garbage unpacked a little bit in, in, in sermons or in devotions. We kind of focus on it a bit because it's like one of the rude words in the, in the New Testament. It's, you know, it's kind of a really bad word and Paul's really putting himself out there by saying this. It means dung, excrement, filth. It's the lowest of the low. And some of the things I was reading this week, it was, it's street filth. It is that which is thrown away, getting it out of your house. And I wonder whether this might be a link to Paul calling these people who put confidence in these things, dogs. Because in that time, you know, the dogs weren't the pampered pets that we have in our family photos these days. They were scavengers. They were out on the street. They survived on the filth that people got rid of as garbage out of their houses. So he goes on. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is what he really desires. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. As we read through this passage and get a bit of an understanding of the context that Paul is writing into, Paul is actually using economic terms. 
You may have heard it repeated, a gain and a loss. This you consider gain. I consider a loss. This is the gain. Everything else is loss. And it's, it's economic terms that he is using. Because for anyone who has any money and has to manage a budget, gains is that which comes in. Any money that you earn or payments that you receive, loss is that which goes out. The expenses that you have, whether it's rent or bills or for clothing or food, anything that you spend is a loss. And so here Paul is referring to these things that the Jewish people consider gains and loss. The Jewish people understand that they are not right with God. Through human nature, through our sinful nature, we are not made right with God. And so that is a huge loss. So to cover that up, to be right with God, we need to gain something. And so these are the things that they're putting their confidence in. These are the things that they consider gain. The circumcision, the following the Jewish law, having the right family, being born into the right family line, being pure in everything that you do. And of course, purity comes through through following the, the Jewish laws. This isn't just the Ten Commandments. This is like the 600 Jewish laws that we have through our Old Testament. But here, Paul says, he considers them a loss. If that is what you are putting your confidence in, then that is not what covers you. That is not the gains that you would be wanting to have in your life. That is just as bad as anything else. It is a loss. But the ultimate gain that we can have is to know Jesus. To truly know Jesus. And knowing Jesus is a greater gain than any possible loss you can have. This is like having an unending bank balance that keeps getting topped up and topped up time and time again. No matter how much you spend, no matter how much you buy, no matter how big your bills are, just having this endless income coming in. Let's just take a moment. How good would that be? How different our lives would be. That he's not talking about finances, but within our own lives. For us to truly know Jesus Christ is the greatest gain we could ever have. And nothing else compares to it. Now, I must say, our culture today is very different to the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. And I don't think many of us today have grown up in a Jewish family with the Jewish cultures and traditions that they hold. But you can't tell me that we also don't have things in our life that we put confidence in. That we have confidence in things of this world rather than having confidence in Jesus Christ. What is it in your life? What is it that you tend to lean on when you need support rather than coming and and getting a gain from Jesus Christ? Is it your own confidence? Is it your own gifts and abilities? Is it your finances? Is it your friendship circles? 
There are things in our life that we put confidence in rather than putting confidence in knowing Jesus. And I think in our churches, we also have things that we put confidence in over a personal relationship with Jesus. Like not our church, of course, because we're perfect. Let's just talk about church in general, right? What are the things within our faith that we tend to put confidence in and priority in rather than people having a personal relationship with God? Here are just a few that I thought of. Knowledge, having an understanding of scriptures, being able to recite a Bible verse at the drop of a hat. Influence being the type of personality that draws people to you. We often think, oh, they're good. They've clearly got leadership ability and we quickly put them into positions of leadership because they have influence, they can impact other people. Sexual purity. This is one that as a church, even today, we put greater priority on than really getting an understanding of whether someone has a close relationship with Jesus. Churches are divided over it because we are putting so much confidence in that rather than in relationship with God. People's involvement, whether they're part of a small group or part of a program, do they do good works? Are they fully involved in their faith throughout their whole week? And even their family, maybe not so much the family line that we focus on, but we look at someone's family. How well are they presenting themselves as a family unit? How well do their children behave? Because clearly that's an indicator of how well they are going in their relationship with Jesus. But these are things that we can't help. But we put focus and priority on. We see these are the important things that we put confidence in within our churches rather than focusing on people's relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, this was not a new concept that Paul was bringing up. This wasn't suddenly crazy behaviour that people should put confidence in knowing God. In fact, even in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, who was a prophet, the Lord says to the people through Jeremiah, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. This was not a new idea for people to put aside the things that we put priority of in our, on the earthly perspective, in our culture, but to focus on truly knowing God. And Jesus backs this up as well. In John, we read when Jesus is praying for and with his disciples. He's praying to his Father in heaven before he's betrayed and ended up being crucified. He prays, now this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How incredible that we have a God who desires to be known. We have a God who loves us so much that he wants a close, personal relationship with us. A God who is so dedicated to that relationship that he even sacrificed his one and only son so that we could have a better understanding of who God is and so that we could truly and intimately know him. Tyler Staten uh, is the author of the book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And he writes this, These disciples knew a God of cleansing rituals and animal sacrifices, a God of ten plagues and blood on the doorpost, a God who parts seas and floods the earth, a God with a heavy hand of deliverance and a heavy hand of judgment, awesome in power, but hard to get to know. Jesus did nothing to diminish the reverence, nothing to minimize the power of God. Jesus made that powerful God knowable. And that is the power of us having a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because it is through Jesus that we have an understanding of who God is and who he calls us to be. If Jesus was out in the surf, would you recognize him? Would you be able to spot him? Do you know Jesus so intimately that if you heard his voice, you would recognize it? That if you thought about how Jesus would move and act, you'd almost be able to predict what he was going to do. How well do we know Jesus? Because when Paul writes these letters, he said at the start, you know, I'm going to say this over and over again. We all need to hear it over and over again. This sermon is much about preaching to myself than anyone else in the room. How well do we know Jesus? Do we make it a priority in our lives? Are we open to that intimate relationship that he desires so much to have with us? Gordon Fee, who is a theologian and, and writes on the book of Philippians, says this, Knowing Christ does not mean to have head knowledge about him, but to know him personally and relationally. Paul has thus taken up the Old Testament theme of knowing God and applied it to Christ. It means to know him as child and parent, know each other or wife and husband, knowledge based on personal experience and intimate relationship and thus to know Christ's character intimately. I know my husband so well because I have spent time with him. Over the course of many years, we've spent time together 
I've spoken to him. I've shared with him all my feelings and thoughts, all my whatever I'm going through at the time. I'm open with him about what I think, about what's going on, or maybe even his actions. There are times where I have listened to him. If anyone knows my husband, you know that's quite a bit of time. We listen and talk to each other. We've gone through different seasons together. We've had really difficult times where we've had to really work at our relationship really hard to stay together. We've had times where it's been joyful and enjoyable. But all of this has come to bring an intimate, close, personal relationship. So how much time are we spending with Jesus? The ultimate relationship we could ever have. The most important thing we can have in our lives. And this is much of a challenge for me as it is for anyone listening. It's how busy is life, right? Things get in the way. We have priorities. We have pressures from work or family, through relationships, whatever it might be, it is actually really difficult to spend time with Jesus. But he desires it so much. Because when we spend time with Jesus, that's when our relationship deepens. That's when we come from just having a head knowledge of scripture or other people's experiences, and we have our own personal experiences with Jesus. And it's really similar, as Fee said, it's really similar to the relationship with a parent and a child or a husband and a wife. So when do we spend time with God? When do we spend time building our relationship with Jesus? You know what? Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care when you spend time with him. He is always there waiting. He's not bound by our schedules. He clearly doesn't have as many busy meetings as what we have. He is always there ready to engage with us. So you need to find what time works best for you. If you are not a morning person, can I suggest not adding an extra, you know, getting up half an hour earlier to do this? Because you'll just hate it and resent it, right? That is not a good time. But find time to spend with Jesus. Some people put post-it notes on their mirror in their bathroom so that when they're getting ready for the day, they're reminded to even in that moment to spend time with Jesus. Maybe it's when you're out in your car. Maybe it's when you are doing exercise, whatever it is. Maybe it's at the end of the day before you put your head on the pillow. There is no right or wrong time. There is no holy time that if you haven't, you know, prayed for at least 20 minutes, then God doesn't listen. No. He just wants to build that relationship with you. But are you prioritizing putting some time aside? Start with one minute. Prioritize one minute a day if you are finding this really hard. And then build on it. 
Because I can guarantee if we prioritize our relationship with Jesus, Jesus will meet us in ways that we would never have thought or predicted. Often we hear, and Paul talks about it a lot, this sacrifice that he has to do and go through because of his faith. In our lives, in our culture, we're not persecuted the same way that Paul was. There's not things in our life, we we don't often risk our lives physically in order to be a Christian. But he still calls for that sacrifice. Maybe it's in our time. Maybe it's in our scheduling to sacrifice in order for our relationship with God to be the best that it can be. And how do we do it? Well, this is the beauty as well. There is no set way for you to spend time with God. We can do it in all different ways. I don't have the same conversation with my husband every single day. There are certainly some things that I might need to repeat over and over, but we all need that. Mix it up. At times in your relationship, you might be at the point you just need to talk to God. Tell him what's going on. Tell him what your struggles are. Tell him that you actually hate quiet time and you hate trying to find time to spend with him and you're finding it really difficult. It's okay. He's big enough to handle the truth. Maybe you have so many concerns and anxieties and fears. You can tell him that as well. You can trust him with that. But then maybe there are times when you actually just need to listen. When you need to just stop And create some space to actually hear what God has to say to you. And maybe there's some times where actually just companionable silence is totally okay. And you can just be in each other's presence. You don't need to be listening or speaking, but just being together. You can use a psalm to add to your prayers, or you could spend some time in worship and just listen to a worship song. And that's part of spending time with God. He doesn't care where. He doesn't care how long. And he doesn't even really care on what you do. But he is there waiting to have a deep, personal relationship with you. All we need to do is put aside some time so that we can hear him, so that we can share with him, so we can be in his presence and we can have a close, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And as Paul says, That is the greatest gain you could ever possibly imagine in your life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us so much that you desire to have a personal, intimate relationship with every single one of us. And God, we just 
want to ask for forgiveness. For when life gets busy and other things take priority. And often because you are a God of love, we push you aside and we don't take the time to spend with you. Even though we know it's the best thing that we can do. We forget about you and we put forward our own gifts and abilities and we try and work our way through life without you. God, thank you for being a forgiving God who is still standing there with open arms, ready to receive us anytime we are willing to turn our hearts and our eyes towards you. God, we thank you for your embrace. We thank you for your commitment to being in a relationship with us. We thank you for the life of Jesus Christ who showed us how to live, who gave us a personal view of who you are and who you call us to be. God, help us through your Holy Spirit prompt us to put things in place for this week that we may take the time to spend with you, to worship you, to love you and honour you and to receive your acceptance, your mercy and your grace so that we can live our lives with the greatest gain that we could ever receive in having a close, personal relationship with you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.